holidays. He's just a prayer away. And he's here to meet needs. Whatever need you have, whether it's for healing, whether it's for restoration, forgiveness, whether it's a financial need, a relationship need, God can handle it. Do you believe that this morning? He can handle that. And so as we go to the Lord in prayer this morning, whatever your need is, I want you to just, by faith, give it to Him. Just say, Lord, this is what I need. And then trust Him with it. Will you join me in prayer, please? Lord, we are so thankful that You're so available. And you, you so much desire for us, Lord, to bring our needs and our petitions to you. When you created us, God, you didn't create us to bear burdens alone. You created us, Lord, to be dependent upon you. So that when we encounter a need, no matter what that need may be, we can come to you and know that your promise is that you'll never leave us, you'll never forsake us. And that even in our neediness, God, you'll be there to bear that burden with us. And so, Lord, for every need this morning, I know that there are people in our, in our family, Lord, that have uh, physical needs this morning. We pray for Virginia Hibbs today. Pray, dear God, that you continue to strengthen, touch her body. We pray for Cheryl Trailer, who's been dealing with pneumonia all week. God, I know that there are many others. I continue to pray for Kenny Keith and Karen Dominguez. and uh, God, just so many others that are in need of your touch. And they're all known to you, Jesus. You're aware of our needs much more than we are. And so, Lord, we just bring them to you this morning in faith believing that you're going to hear and that you're going to answer. And God, we especially pray for rain. God, we have seen evidence this past week of the danger, fires, Lord, this time of year with the dry weather and the the dry vegetation. God, I just pray for not only your protection for your people, but protect the people, Lord, whose lives depend upon the grass that feeds their livestock, the water that irrigates their crops and uh, God I I just pray protection over every firefighter Lord who has who has been fighting these fires and and so God it's for all of those reasons and more that we we petition you this morning Lord to send us the abundance of rain throughout this area Lord you have told us in your word that You can make the desert come alive with plants and vegetation. And God, I don't know that we're a desert, but we're close right now. And so God, we need that rain that you've promised. And for all these things, Jesus, we express our gratitude to you in advance of seeing your answer with our eyes. We thank you. Be with us in the furtherance of this service this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Be friendly to a point. Just, just about 30 seconds worth. 
That's your daughter? Yeah. Oh, all right. Thank you for being here this morning. <laughs> Go ahead and run that down to about 30 seconds. <laughs> uh. Just a couple of things that I want to share with you before we uh, move into the message this morning. Uh, last week we had an announcement in the bulletin concerning the SVTPC, and I know not many of you know what that even is. And so I want to take just a moment this morning to explain that. Uh, I have asked the official board to allow me to appoint an advisory board to help shape the vision and our future. And... Uh, We've done that, and what we've called it is the SVTPC, and what that means is it's the Strategic Vision and Team Planning Cohort, and uh, I have asked some people that represent a broad cross-section of our church, both age-wise and, and singles and marrieds, and, and we've been meeting for a couple of months, once a month, and uh, we are meeting again tonight, but I know that that announcement was in the bulletin and it raised some questions. Some of you had no idea what that was, so I wanted to take just this brief time to explain that to you. Uh, Ryan has already congratulated our Teacher of the Year. That's amazing, Anita. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we're proud of you. And uh, also, I wanted to announce that we are going to be doing a baptismal service. And uh, I, I, was so, I was so thrilled this past week when little Bella uh, came and asked to be baptized. Uh, for those of you who weren't here on Easter Sunday morning, Bella came forward and accepted Jesus as her Savior. One of the coolest things, one of the, one of the great things that I, I've had... A, a, opportunity to be a part of and and first thing she wants to do is she wants to follow the Lord in water baptism so if you've not been baptized or if you want to be rebaptized, there's certain certainly scriptural evidence that that's important because baptism is the outward sign of an inner change and you know sometimes uh, some of us fall away and then we come back <laughs> thank the Lord and uh, if we want the world to know that what has been on the outside is no longer there, that we've changed inside, it's okay. So contact me if you'd like to be baptized, and we'll get that set up, and we're sure going to do it, even if it's just Bella, we're going to do it. So thank you for being here this morning, and uh, we are going to conclude a long, long sermon series this morning. We have been in... This sermon series entitled Growing in Grace since the first Sunday of the year. And uh, today we are in part 14, the 14th and final uh, 
message in this series. I'd like for you to turn with me in your Bibles or on your smart app on your phone, if you would please, to Acts chapter number 8. And while you're turning there, let me just say that next Sunday, we're going to be starting another sermon series, and I'm really excited about it. I've entitled it, Christ Has Arisen, What Now? It's, it's something that's kind of been brewing inside of me for a year or so now. And i um, really excited about it. So uh, I think you'll want to make every effort to be here and be a part of that. I think you're going to enjoy this brand new sermon series that's fresh off the, the stove. So uh, be here if at all possible. Acts chapter number 8. And I want to read with you, at least initially beginning with verse number 9. By the way, I do have my shirt tail tucked in today, just for those of you who... (laughs) Some of you don't have any idea what I'm talking about, do you? Last Sunday, I have this little fan up here, underneath the pulpit, and it was blowing up my shirt last week, and I have not been to the tanning booth yet this year, so... Today I tucked the shirt in, so you can all relax and just listen this morning and not have to be grossed out. (laughs) Verse number 9 of Acts 8. A man named Simon had previously practiced sorcery in that city, speaking of the city of Samaria, and astounded the Samaritan people while claiming to be somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least of them to the greatest, and they said, this man is called the great power of God. They were attentive to him because he had astounded them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized, and then even Simon himself believed And after he was baptized, he went around constantly with Philip and was astounded as he observed the signs and great miracles that were being performed. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the inspiration that you have given me through the entirety of this series. And God, I pray that each one of us have a greater appreciation of your grace that is so freely given and so, so freely uh, bestowed upon us, dear God. And so, Lord, as we conclude this sermon series this morning, again, I ask for your anointing upon my words. In Jesus' name, amen. The Samaritans in our text had been amazed, uh, even though they had been seduced by magic and sorcery for a long period of time, and they had become, I I guess it'd be okay for me to say this, they had become addicted to Simon and his deception. But they were even more amazed, our text says, by the straightforward truth of the gospel that Philip had shared with them. And as a result, the people of Samaria, whom, whom you need to understand, were Gentiles. They were not Jews, they were Gentiles. They came to belief in Jesus as a result of Philip's ministry. Now, 
The Bible tells us that even Simon himself longed for something real because he, of all people, knew how empty his pagan magic really was. So he believed also, and he was amazed at the power of God that was demonstrated through Philip's ministry. But eventually, if you read on in this passage, and we're not going to, but you'll find beginning in verse number 14, that Simon somehow got off track. He came and he wanted to purchase God's power so that he could use God's power for his own selfish purchase. Purposes, not purchases, purposes. He thought it was something that you could buy. And that's another message, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on that this morning, but just hear me on this. In spite of that, the powerful simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it resonates with people. It resonated with the people of Samaria, and for once in their lives, they were amazed by the truth rather than being mesmerized by deception. The truth about Jesus has a powerful effect on those of us who have received it. Amen? How many of you can, with 100% degree of honesty, say, the power of Jesus has changed my life? Hallelujah. It's, it, it is the power of God unto salvation. Uh, how can we back that up? Well, this morning, I want to be talking to you about power and how power can affect people. And in doing so, I'd like to make three observations about power that I believe will help us recognize how amazing it really is to be able to have a living relationship with the creator of the universe. So let's get started. First of all, power attracts people. Have you noticed that? People like power. I mean, when you think about it, don't we usually want the most powerful car or truck? Uh, don't we usually want the most powerful fireworks on the 4th of July? If you're like me, uh, you want the most powerful home run hitter to be on your baseball team. Unlike me, you'd love to have powerful ripped muscles. Now, there are some who are attracted to other kinds of power, like spending power. And I don't know, maybe you think you'd like to have a little bit more of that kind of power. Uh, could be. But we're impressed about, with power. Sports teams and athletes who show their power to excel and to win. History has shown us examples of people who have very powerful personalities and charisma. They, they're able to attract people who are willing to follow them because people want to be around power. Powerful leaders who had great who have great leadership skills have accomplished amazing things. Why? Because people were attracted to their power and helped them to carry out their goals and their aspirations. Uh, politicians. They're generally elected on the basis of their power to lead and to get things done. And if a politician can persuade people that they have power to change bad situations into good ones, more often than not, they get elected. 
Simon had a following. Simon had a following because he had convinced people that he had power. And perhaps he had been able to perform some miracles through his sorcery. Miracles just aren't possible through the power of God. The power of the enemy is also very real. If you think back to the Old Testament, when Moses went before the Pharaoh to ask for the people of Israel to be released out of bondage, Pharaoh called his magicians and his sorcerers, and they did miraculous works, all under the power of the enemy. And so, it would appear that Simon's magic was somewhat along those same lines. It wasn't just magic tricks, it was witchcraft, and the Bible speaks very strongly about witchcraft and its evils. So whether Simon had some kind of supernatural power or if he just was able to convince people that he had power, there was no doubt that he had developed power and influence over many of the people of Samaria. If you look at verse number 11, it tells us that they were attentive to him because he had astounded them with his sorcery for a very long time. Now, if you study the history of spiritual revivals, it's one of my favorite things to do. You can see that people are attracted to spiritual power. Healing crusades have drawn millions of people over the years because God's power was at work in those services. I've read a lot about uh, powerful healing ministries by pastors such as uh, A.A. Allen and and T.L. Osborne and and Oral Roberts, and probably at the top of my list would be Reinhard Bonnke. I hope you know who Reinhard Bonnke is. Uh, Reinhard Bonnke is the one responsible for uh, bringing into being Christ for all nations. And as I was reading some more about Reinhard Bonnke this week, listen to this. Reinhard Bonnke's ministry in Africa has credited him with seeing more than 75 million people come to faith in Jesus Christ. (laughs) Not to mention the amazing miracles that have taken place under his ministry. People being raised from the dead. Blinded eyes opened. uh, Limbs being replaced. I mean, it's almost... I I say that and it's almost like, well, we've never seen anything like that here in America. Well, maybe that ought to tell us something. The people over there, they haven't talked themselves out of believing in the supernatural. In fact, they just, in faith, trust God. And God follows with signs and wonders to those who believe. But anyway... Power is what brings that to pass. God's power. Aside from facing times when our answer has to come from a higher power, there's something within us, I believe, that still wants to see the supernatural take place. In its purest form, I believe that something is a genuine hunger for the living God to show up in our midst whenever we come together. I still believe that he wants to follow his word with signs and wonders. Amen? And I I believe that we need a manifestation of God's power in not only this church, but throughout the churches in America today. I believe it would change the landscape 
of our country if that were to happen. But however, power in its fallen form and, and, and having people who want to witness the miraculous and the sensational, it can become an unhealthy infatuation with spiritual forces that are out there that intend to do us harm. And evidently that's what had happened with the people of Samaria to whom Simon had uh, practiced his sorcery for many, many years. Now that brings me to my second observation, and it's this. Power without truth is dangerous. Power has the ability to corrupt Simon had seduced these people for a long time with his sorcery. His desire for power over others was a corrupt and evil desire. Simon wanted that because Simon enjoyed being the center of attention. He enjoyed being a person of power and prestige. And no doubt he enjoyed the money that he made for his quote unquote spiritual services. And it had the people of this Gentile nation almost under a, a demonic hold with his witchcraft and, and, and sorcery practices. It's probably safe to assume that, as I said earlier, he was addicted to the approval and the attention of people. Now some would argue that there are spiritual powers in our world today that we don't understand. In fact, it's popular particularly in America, because that's where we hear, the, hear it the most, for people to believe that many religions are good and moral and that we should not say anything bad about other religions. Those who believe that will usually add that all roads lead to God and that it doesn't matter what God you believe in as long as you are sincere in your belief. Let me just say to you, that's not what the Bible says. In fact, the Bible teaches us very differently. The Bible teaches that we have one creator who is Lord of heaven and earth, and he has told us explicitly to not have any other gods in our lives and not to make any kind of images or substitute gods for us to worship. Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 6, verse number 12. He tells us that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. So we know, according to what Scripture tells us, that there are other powers and spiritual forces around, but Paul tells us just two verses prior to that verse that I just quoted to you, that we need to be strengthened by the Lord. And by his vast strength, our power, the right kind of power, comes from God. So we know that uh, it's possible that there are other spiritual forces around, but they cannot stand against the power of God. He goes on to illustrate, Paul does, the spiritual armor that every believer has to have in order for us to be strong and powerful. And the first piece of armor that he mentions is the belt of truth. Now, all of these pieces of the armor that Paul describes in Ephesians 6, they're all important. But for this morning, I'm just going to focus on this one. 
Jesus used the word truth as a description of himself. Maybe it would be more correct for me to say it this way. He used himself to describe what real truth is. He said, John chapter 14, verse number 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one, no one comes to the Father except through me. One of the most powerful verses in all of Scripture. And as much as people often need more power in their lives to help meet their needs, they need to be very careful because if they sacrifice truth for power, they can be getting a lot more than what they bargained for because power without truth will seduce you. In fact, it will corrupt you. Power without truth can kill you. You know how I know that? If an electrician doesn't know the truth about an electrical wire, whether that wire be connected to 110 volts or 220 volts, they generally don't grab a hold of it again. Because they find out the truth about that wire, right? They'll only do it once. So we, what I'm saying is we need to keep the truth always before us as we seek God and his power. The Samaritans that Philip came and ministered to, they had been under the influence of witchcraft, Simon's witchcraft, for quite some time. And we read that people of all classes started paying close attention to what Simon had told them. They were seduced by his power because they did not have the truth to properly guide them. But the Lord knew what the people of Samaria needed. So what does he do? He sends Philip to enlighten them with truth and to show them what real power is all about. And that brings me to my third point. The power of the truth leads to freedom. The power of the truth leads to freedom. Look at verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized, and I'll add, into the kingdom of God. Perhaps it might be helpful for us to go back a few verses where it tells about Philip's arrival in Samaria, uh, where he... Uh, began to proclaim the Messiah to them. Look at verse number 5. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and preached the Messiah to them. The crowds paid attention with one mind to what Philip said as they heard and saw the signs he was performing. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now I want you to understand something, friends. Philip was not out to make a name for himself, as was Simon. Nor was Philip after the people's money, as Simon was. In fact, truth be known, Philip was probably really hurting at the time that he went to this city in Samaria because his close friend Stephen had just been falsely accused of blasphemy and had been stoned to death by the Jewish religious body, the Sanhedrin, back in the city of Jerusalem. 
And on top of that, if you look at verse 1 of chapter 8, you will find that the church in Jerusalem, where Philip had once loved and labored, had now been scattered and reduced from thousands being a part of it to almost nothing. In fact, Philip had to get out of the city of Jerusalem just to in order to, in order to avoid being arrested and executed himself. Now here's the interesting thing, and I'm going to toss this in just for your consideration. Go to Acts chapter 1, verse number 8. It says, But you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Right? Famous last words of Jesus. And then from Acts chapter 1 to the end of Acts chapter number 7, we see that the church is flourishing in the city of Jerusalem, right? But it doesn't say anything about them having left the city of Jerusalem to go into Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So look at Acts chapter 8, verse number 1. What does it say? It says that the Lord scattered them. Now that may seem like a bad thing. Okay, the church was thousands in Jerusalem and now it's almost nothing. But here's what happened. God used the scattering of the apostles to take the gospel where he told them to take it in Acts chapter 1 verse number 8. I love that. Acts chapter 1 verse number 8 tells them where to go. Acts chapter 8 verse number 1 tells them how they got there. They were scattered. You see, God uses things that look like, it, it, it looks unfortunate that the church in Jerusalem is scattered, right? We don't think that sounds like a good thing. God takes what the enemy meant for evil and turns it for good to accomplish his divine purposes. That's the power of God. But back to Philip. His buddy Stephen had been stoned to death in Jerusalem. The church had been reduced to almost nothing. He had to leave to avoid being arrested himself. But evidently, as he left, I think he must have remembered something that Stephen had said just before he died about Samaria and even Gentiles receiving the good news about Jesus. And so with a sense of mission, Philip heads toward this city in Samaria to tell people about Jesus. And then as we saw, God showed up. And God began healing people and setting them free from demon possession. And since most of them who were involved in demon possession had been influenced by Simon's witchcraft, there was a lot of demonic activity and bondage in their lives. The same demonic spirits that Simon had perhaps even unknowingly introduced these, into these people's lives, they began to see these demonic spirits cast out. As Philip preached to them and prayed for them. And those who were sick in their, in their group were healed. Those who were paralyzed were able to stand up and walk. And so instead of a dark, mysterious, oppressive atmosphere, the Bible tells us that there was great joy in that city in Samaria because the truth was having a powerful effect on the Samaritan people. They were being set free. They were finding forgiveness and healing. And the impact of the gospel was so great that even Simon himself believed. The very one who had led these people deeper and deeper into darkness became a believer. Now there are some Bible teachers 
who find it necessary to say that Simon was not sincere in his conversion and therefore was not really saved. I'm not going to go there. I'm just going to rely on what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that Simon believed. What happened later is another sermon. But the Bible tells us that Simon believed. Even Simon, who may have claimed to have been a God himself, experienced the power of God and was forgiven for all of his dark and dirty deeds. Freedom had indeed come to that city in Samaria. Now there's more I could say about this story. But I want to move on to just one very important last thought. And before I do that, let me just say that God's grace can reach even the worst of us. Aren't you thankful for that? God's grace can reach even the worst. You see, Simon had led hundreds of people, if not thousands of people, into the sin of witchcraft. And who knows how low Simon himself had sunk in his own wickedness and and, and depravity. But we see as a result of the Bible telling us that Simon himself believed, Simon discovered that God's grace was available even to him. And he was so amazed by God's love and power that he came to belief in Jesus and he was baptized to show that he too wanted to follow the one true God. Now that very important last thought that I told you I wanted to share with you. The truth of Jesus Christ will have a powerful effect on those who receive it. Now I want you to listen very closely to me because this is something that is so absolutely necessary for every one of us to understand. John chapter 1 verse number 14. John tells us these things concerning Jesus. He said, The Word became flesh and took up residence among us. We observed His glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Again, listen closely. Let me just give you an example. Years ago, when Brenda and I were being interviewed to become pastors at one of the churches that we eventually did pastor, I had to indicate to the board that was interviewing me my standpoint on a variety of different issues. And one of those issues was how, <laughs> was how I measured grace versus truth. Um, did I lean more toward grace or did I lean more toward the letter of the law? Now, thinking about that question years later, I think that the motivation behind their question was to ease their minds that I would not lean too much to the grace and rather enforce the absolute truth of what the Word says. But I was, I'm kind of proud of myself with the way that I answered their question. Because when I was given that question, I answered it in this something like this. I don't have it word for word, but this was my thought. I think it's a bad question. And I used John 14 as my reason for believing that it was a bad question. 
I said to them, seeing how Jesus came from the Father full of grace and truth, I believe that we should be 100% in both directions. Now here's why that's important. And, and, and honestly, I think it was a loaded question. They just wanted to see my response. But here's my point in sharing that with you. Grace or truth. Let me tell you something. Or is not an option. When, it, when you're given the choice between grace or truth, or is not an option. We need to be grace people, and we need to be truth people. Not half grace, not half truth, not grace on Mondays and truth on Tuesdays. All grace and all truth all of the time. Just as the result of our personality and our upbringing and a whole bunch of other factors, most people have the tendency to lean in one direction or the other, either all grace or all truth, or 75% grace and 25% truth, or 75% truth and 25% grace. You get, the, you get the drift. Why do we do that? Well, because grace people are pleasant to be around. They don't ruffle any feathers. They cut the rest of us a lot of slack. They're easygoing. They accept us as for who we are. They don't make demands of us. They're always welcoming. But friends, let me tell you something. Without truth, grace really isn't grace. It's just being accepting and nice. But being affirming and being grace-filled are two different things. Grace people without truth are pleasant to be around. But if you think about it, if you encounter a person like that, you get to wondering, do they really like us? Or are they just doing what they need to do in order for me to like them? Right? Now, <coughs> grace people can be apprehensive. They can be tentative. That is, they often shy away from making tough decisions in life. They demand nothing from anyone else. They get nothing in return. They accept us for who we are. They never, the problem with accepting us for who we are is they never help us become who we should be. And that's where truth comes in. Truth people. Truth people are easy to admire. They have convictions. They have strong principles. Truth people believe in right or wrong. They set standards. They speak out against injustices. They speak out against oppression. They speak out against evil. They're usually very articulate and well-spoken. But without grace, telling the truth can become an excuse for becoming belligerent. Just hear me on this. Truth people without grace are loyal to their cause, but we wonder if they're really loyal to us. They want to change us. They want, us to, they want to make us better. They want to make us right and wrong, absolute, no gray areas. But they don't allow for mistakes in that journey. 
They're quick to cast judgment on other people. They make difficult decisions, but they can also make life very difficult for other people and for themselves. Truth people can also sometimes be very slow to forgive. They inspire us with their courage, but they turn us off with their intimidation. So if you're a grace person, you're most concerned about being loved. If you're a truth person, you're most concerned about being right. Even if it means being unloved. Both types of people, grace people and truth people, have their dangers. And I don't know any other way to say it than this. Something is wrong if everyone hates you. Just about as much as something being wrong if everybody loves you. (laughs) Are you with me? You understand what I'm saying? Here's the lesson. Grace and truth walked among us in the person of Jesus Christ. John said he was full of grace and truth. He was all grace. He welcomed sinners. He welcomed tax collectors. He even ate with them. He had compassion on the crowds that were hungry and far from home and fed them. He welcomed little children to come and to sit on his lap. And those children loved his gentleness more than any department store Santa they'd ever set on his lap. That was who Jesus was. He was full of grace. He healed lepers. He made the lame to walk. He caused the blind to see. He even saved the criminal hanging next to him on another cross who with his dying breath confessed that the dying man next to him, the person of Jesus, was truly the Son of God. He was full of grace. But friends, Jesus was also full truth. All truth. He condemned many of the religious leaders of his day for being liars and hypocrites. If you read the Gospels, you'll find that Jesus talked a whole lot more about hell than he did about heaven. He called all of those who would be his disciples to take up their cross daily in order to follow him. He even prophesied judgment on the city of Jerusalem for their unrepentance. He obeyed the law, he set standards, and he demanded everything from his followers, even their very lives. So Jesus was also full of truth. He came from the Father full of grace and truth, all grace, all truth, all the time. But here's my conclusion. Jesus didn't come merely to give us an example of grace and truth. He came to save us in grace and truth. What does that mean? Friends, it's only after we've been saved and made right with God that God looks at us and he says, all right, now that I've saved you through my son Jesus, you need to understand that I have saved you so that you will start looking like he is. You start looking like him. You remember that phrase I told you my granddad told me years and years ago? He said, everything beautiful that you see in me is because of Jesus Everything else, he and I are still working on. We are to day by day 
look more and more like Jesus. In our actions, in our words, in our decisions, we begin to grow in grace. And let me tell you what. Here's what I've discovered. In order for me to grow, I need grace to help me with the project. Amen? It's like, it's like there are things that I do that, think, that I would think, man, this ought to make me grow spiritually. And then I find out that I'm doing it for my own selfish purposes rather than for God. So I need grace. I need grace to guide my growth. And my, my grace to, uh, that guides my growth has to be bathed in truth. Our motivation to be full of grace and truth is not because we need to earn God's favor. It's because being a follower of Jesus Christ means that we need to look like the one whom we follow. We desperately need grace in our lives. That's why Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Come to me all you who are weary and burdened. I'll give you rest. We need to know that God doesn't expect us to clean up our act before we come to Him. How many of you are grateful for that? He implores us to come now just as we are, whether we're broken or whether we're in pain. And He wants us to come in humility and in repentance and in faith. We need to hear that wayward children as some of us have been who have squandered their inheritance and lived in a moral, rebellious lifestyle can come home into the arms of a heavenly Father waiting for us to return home, just like the prodigal in Luke chapter 15. We need to hear from Jesus what this saying really means. The truth will set you free. Jesus goes on to say there, I tell you the truth, anyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. But if the Son sets you free, you really are free. Hallelujah. We need someone as gracious as Jesus to tell us the truth. You know what the truth is? Are you ready for this? We are not okay. That's the truth. We are not okay. We, don't, we do not need to push away feelings of guilt that have weighed us down because we are guilty. And anyone who tells us otherwise is not telling us the truth. For all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. People won't tell you the truth. You won't experience the grace that you need. We need truth. We need grace. We need Jesus full of grace and truth. Now, as the worship team comes, I want to tell you, this is, this is a very simple message. In fact, this has been, at least in my estimation, a very basic, simple sermon series designed to introduce us, if we've not already been introduced, to the amazing grace of God and how we need it every day that we live. Friends, if you've not been amazed by the grace of God and the power of His truth, let me just tell you something. Get ready for something good when you finally do experience it. 
Because grace is amazing. Jesus loves you. He will forgive you for every wrong thing you've ever done. He will heal you. He will deliver you from darkness and bondage that the enemy has tried to keep you under. And do you want to know that God is real? Here's how you find out. Talk to him. Ask him to help you find his grace and truth. And I promise you that you'll be amazed how he t- will turn your life around. His grace is powerful enough to help you. But in order for him to help you, you have to call on him. You have to reach out to him. If you need Jesus to help you today, talk to him. Ask him to help. Let His power be released in your life. Let His grace change you and make you the person that He created you to be. Would you bow with me, please? Lord Jesus, thank You for Your grace. Thank You for Your grace. Lord, myself and many in this room have sung that old hymn for as long as we can remember in church. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. We've sung that song a thousand times if we've sung it once. But Lord, my experience in your church, both prior to being called into ministry and especially after being called into ministry, is that many of us who have sung that song over and over down through the years have missed the entire focus of what the song is saying to us. Oh God, we're thankful for the grace that's been bestowed upon us, but it's not quite so easy for us to be dispensers of grace to others who need it, perhaps even more than we did. And for that, God, we today ask for your forgiveness. We've also missed the meaning of that song, not understanding, Lord, that We didn't just need your grace to forgive us our sins and to bring us to salvation. We need your grace to help us grow day by day, making us look more and act more like you, Jesus. So Lord, my prayer as we conclude this lengthy sermon series this morning, is that we will gain a greater appreciation for grace than we've ever known before because we've now come to know the truth. And the truth has set us free. It's set us free from all religious piety set us free from acting like church people 
Whatever that means. It set us free, God, from having to put, up, put on a mask and pretend that we're something that we're really not. Your truth has illuminated the darkness of our lives. And your grace has enabled us to let light overpower that darkness and be seen in us every day that we live. So Jesus, in this invitation this morning, I'm praying that your Holy Spirit moves through this entire room this morning, touching every heart. And if there are people in this room who have not yet experienced your amazing grace, draw them to yourself today. If there are people in this room who have experienced your amazing grace and the forgiving of sins that it has brought to their lives, but they find themselves what I call plateaued, They've not grown beyond that initial experience. They're saved. Their ticket is punched for heaven. But God, there's so much more for them that grace will bring to them. If only they'll allow, him to, allow you to give it to them. And so, Lord, I'm praying that your Holy Spirit would speak to each of these types of individuals today in this service. Because God, I believe that every one of us want to be more like you than what we are. And we need your grace to help us accomplish that. Would you stand with me, please? I had originally wanted us to sing that song, Lord, I Need You just to tell the Lord how much we need Him, how much we need His grace, how much we need His truth. But I chose to go in a different direction. And I want us to sing another song that we sang earlier. Because I want us to become accustomed to living as people of grace. Let's sing, This is Amazing Grace. Proclaim to God what He's done for you, how He's changed you. And confess to him that there's a whole lot more that needs to be changed. Right? I can say that. <laughs> I'm not anywhere close to what God fully wants me to be. But I tell you what, I want him to know I'm working on it. Amen. Amen.